All right, thank you, Mr. Foreman. Uh, I understand you've reached a verdict on this matter. All right, thank you, Madam Richard. In the matter between the Crown and David Charles Benbow, please place David Charles Benbow before the court. After hearing seven weeks of evidence, the jury in the retrial of David Benbow had retired to consider the defendant's fate. The hearing had been a surreal experience. It featured almost entirely the same people. The judge, the lawyers, the witnesses, the registrar, the defendant, obviously. It was held in the same courtroom. And much of the evidence was the same as the first trial, sometimes verbatim out of people's mouths. But this time, there was one crucial difference. This time, the jury had reached a verdict. Mr. Fourperson, please stand. Members of the jury, have you unanimously agreed upon your verdict? We have. Do you find the defendant, David Charles Bembo, guilty of murder or not guilty of murder? From Stuff, this is The Trial. I'm Michael Wright. In May 2017, Michael McGrath, a 49-year-old builder from Christchurch, disappeared almost without trace. His longtime friend, David Benbow, was later arrested and charged with his murder. Benbow pleaded not guilty and, in early 2023, stood trial. The jury in that case couldn't reach a verdict, so, in late 2023, David Benbow stood trial again. And the jury did reach a verdict. Members of the jury, have you unanimously agreed upon your verdict? We have. Do you find the defendant, David Charles Bembo, guilty of murder or not guilty of murder, or guilty of murder but guilty of manslaughter? Guilty of murder. And are you all agreed members of the jury? Please be seated. After six years, four of them with a murder charge hanging over him, an unprecedented police investigation, no body, no weapon, no firm crime scene, 14 weeks of evidence across two trials, including more than 250 witness testimonies, and two juries that deliberated for nearly 40 hours, David Benbow was guilty of the murder of Michael McGrath. It was a merciful ending, in that there was an ending at all. The hung jury at the first trial created a sense of uncertainty, a state of limbo. But after that false finish, a retrial was called and the process moved swiftly. If there had been another hung jury, no one was sure what would come next. Now though, Justice Eaton's job was straightforward. Thank you, Mr. Four-person members of the jury. Mr. Bembo, uh, the jury having found you guilty on the charge of the murder of Michael McGrath, you're now convicted of that charge. Ms. Gray, the sentencing date is 5 March next year. I take it there's no other matters you need to be heard on at this stage. 
Mr. Bembo, you'll be remanded in custody through till the 5th of March 2024 for sentencing. I'll call for a pre-sentence report and for victim impact statements. You may stand down. Thank you. With that, the court security guard jangled his keys, swiped his swipe card, and David Benbo, free on bail for the past two years, was taken to the cells. Throughout the trial, he had sat silent and resolute between two court officers. Occasionally, he'd chat to his lawyers, pass them the odd note. Other than that, he was a passive presence in the courtroom. If he sat listening to the evidence for a while, it was easy to forget he was even there, the object of the trial, rather than its subject. In the dock, learning his fate, nothing changed. Guilty of murder. And are you all agreed members of the jury? Benbo was stony-faced and silent. His mother, Shirley Benbo, a slight, grey-haired woman and an immovable presence in the public gallery through both trials, was the same. She left court quietly afterwards and made no comment. Once the verdict is handed down, a jury's job is done. They get to leave next. Mr Fourperson, members of the jury, uh, from the outset of this trial, you've embraced your role with great patience and great care. That's been notable to us all. Uh, and you've obviously, over the past few days, given very close consideration to the evidence. By way of conclusion, I just thank you for your service as uh, jurors. Uh, as I said at the very outset of this trial, our criminal justice system could not operate and could not deliver justice but for the willingness of persons like your good selves to sit as jurors, uh, particularly in a complex uh, and demanding trial such as this one. Uh, your jury service is now at an end. Um, you may retire and I thank you. And just to counsel, uh, I thank all counsel involved in this trial and the original trial. I thank you and commend you for your conduct of the case. It's been difficult, uh, complex and demanding. Uh, I'll now retire. Thank you. I'll stand please with Carlos Jones. His Honour will now retire. Then the air rushed back into the room. You would have heard the claps and the gasps and the muted whoops when the verdict was delivered earlier. But it was fleeting and pretty reserved. Court decorum was upheld. This is New Zealand after all. Now though, the trial was officially over. The relief was palpable. In the hubbub, my colleague Martin Van Bainen grabbed Simon McGrath, Michael McGrath's brother, for a quick chat. The first thing he asked him was how the past few months had been in the shadow of that hung jury. Oh, I was so deflated after last time. I was so deflated and um, the realisation we had to go through it all again and it just brings up so many emotions. And I felt this time was a lot more structured in the trial. Yeah, I felt a lot better this time, but there was no, still never been any doubt in my mind. Absolutely no doubt. No doubt at all. I, I grew up with that then by myself. Did you? Yeah. yeah. Some of his closest mates from those years believed he's done. Right. Right. Yeah. So there's no doubt in my mind. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of people say, oh, he's not, the, he's just not the sort of guy. No. But what would you say to that? Well, they don't know him very well. Don't know well. Yeah. They don't know very well. I know, and his close mates know. Him. Yeah. And, uh, he'll have some believers. Yeah. yeah. But everyone does. So. Yeah. Outside court, Simon McGrath was more considered when he addressed the media. And today's guilty verdict is welcomed by the McGrath family and friends of Michael. It is without doubt a hugely bittersweet moment 
Michael was a meticulous and uh, talented builder who was hugely loyal, humble and unassuming. He's sorely missed. Michael has been taken away from us in the most cowardly, premeditated and murderous manner. The horrific nature, trauma and legacy of this despicable whack will haunt the family for the rest of our lives. We would like to acknowledge and thank... The family could now move on, McGrath said. Hugely emotional. I've never felt anything like it. I'm just elated. It's a just verdict. There's absolutely no doubt, and everyone knows Michael, there's absolutely no doubt in our minds that it's a just verdict. But a just verdict couldn't answer all the questions asked in this trial. Yes, David Benbow was guilty of killing Michael McGrath. The jury had clearly accepted the Crown's murder theory. On May 22, 2017, Benbow, enraged by McGrath's relationship with his ex, invited his friend to his property on false pretenses. There, he murdered McGrath, likely with his own 22 caliber rifle, then disposed of all the evidence, including the gun and McGrath's body. That much had been proven in court, but it left one thing hanging. What did Benbow do with Michael McGrath's body? Where is Michael? Absolutely, where is Michael? Joining me now is my colleague, whose voice you heard earlier, Martin Van Bainen. Hi, Martin. Hello. Martin covered the first Benbow trial in full, and we're talking now on October the 13th, 2023. It's the day after the verdict in the Benbow retrial. Martin, one of the stories you filed yesterday was built around that question we just heard from Simon McGrath, where's Michael? It's still the big unknown in this case. Very much so, and I'm sure it would be a great comfort to the family if they got an answer to that question. But um, I think, to be realistic, we all are aware that the likelihood of um, David Bembo disclosing that is is very slim. It would be an admission of guilt on his part, which has absolutely not happened because we've had two trials. Exactly, and he 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 probably has some hopes of overturning the jury verdict on appeal, maybe. And yes, it would be uh, an admission that he had led everyone on a, a bit of a dance, a wild goose chase, when he was guilty all along. Any word of an appeal yet? Not yet. What do you think? I doubt that they'll go that way, but he's got nothing to lose, really, from an appeal. The appeal would have to be around the judge's directions to the jury and they were fairly meticulous. I, I don't think that's very fertile ground. The other grounds could be that no reasonable jury could have reached the verdict that was reached yesterday. But again, there was strong evidence against David Bembo, and an appeal court is not going to substitute its own view of that evidence. Well, let's talk about some of that evidence because we're here, but there there was a retrial that was different from the first trial, as Justice Eaton said, but still largely the same. One of the things I want to talk about is one of the strands of the Crown case, which we heard from Barnaby Hawes in his closing, which was this logic argument. If not this, then what? What happened to Michael McGrath if he wasn't murdered by David Benbow? And equally, what else explains David Benbow's actions, if not this? How did that seem to you? Well, that was the essential question, really. Once the jury had decided that uh, Michael McGrath hadn't just wandered off into the sunset 
because he couldn't face life anymore in Christchurch, or he went somewhere and took his own life. Once they discounted that, and that that was a fairly far-fetched um, notion, really, that Michael had done that. So once they once they had um, discounted that, they were on to the next question: was okay, was it foul play? And the answer to that was yes, it must have been. And then we get, you know, who's the most likely culprit? I mean, the defence will argue that the police only looked at one man. But uh, was there anybody else? It doesn't seem likely, given Michael's lifestyle. It's not as though he, he was a, uh, had a secret life as a drug dealer and, and was doing, uh, and may have been uh, murdered out of revenge or, or some other reason. David Bembo was the person who had already talked about wanting to annihilate Michael and was obviously seething about losing uh, half his assets to his partner who was having a, a relationship with Michael. So, yeah, you could he was really the only real culprit or the only real suspect. If there was an alternate theory, the defence would have presented it. Well, they did. They put that possibility to the jury and said, well, look, you can't outrule the fact that Michael just wandered off or, com- or took his own life. And that was true. That was true. But it had to be a reasonable possibility. Right. Yeah. It's not a super compelling alternative. You cannot rule out the possibility of suicide. You can't rule out the fact that Michael was abducted by aliens either. Hmm. But you have to look at the whether it's a reasonable possibility. The defence worked quite hard on that theory. In the second trial, they brought in another psychiatric expert. Not he wasn't a psychiatrist, but he was a clinical psychologist. And essentially, he was saying. We don't know enough about how Michael was coping with his new relationship and the pressures that exerted on him to to really make a prediction about whether he could have taken his own life. The power evidence, the idea that Michael McGrath may have been at home using power in his house after 9am on that Monday morning, which means he was not at David Benbow's being murdered, therefore. This was one of the things we focused on in the last episode because the evidence changed a bit, probably the most of any of the evidence in the case. How did you see it? You didn't sit through all of this case, but you heard the closings. How did power stack up to you second time round? My impression, and I I hasten to say that I I didn't sit through the many hours of uh, what would have been fairly tedious evidence about the power, but my impression was that the Crown had a much better case on the power and produce an expert who had done some more testing, was more convincing or persuasive on the fact that the electricity usage of Michael's house looked very much like he hadn't come back after he left in the morning. It was neater, I think. is the I listened to a lot of it. I read all of it. It was neater than last time. There weren't mistakes. There weren't witnesses coming back to correct themselves. There was a valid theory put forward by an expert that the defence expert disputed, but still, it was it was there. It was presented. It, it was, it was it plausible, was, more than plausible. Yeah. Equally, the defences was too. But yeah, it was just a it was a loose end, I guess, that they tidied up in between trials one and two. Well, the the power evidence in the last trial, in the first trial, was a bit of a dog's breakfast. The crown expert made a major mistake and had to eat humble pie. Some information came in very late, which helped the crown case. But it all looked it all looked pretty sketchy. But it sounds as though this time they had a very plausible expert who was obviously preferred over the defence because if the jury had a reasonable, there was a reasonable prospect that Michael McGrath was at home 
after 9am on May the 22nd, then they would have had to acquit. Mm. And this is why power was so important, because unlike some of the other things we focused on last episode, CCTV, Stephen Robinson, the port witness who we'll get to, the power evidence had the ability to undermine other elements of the case. Because like you say, if he is at home after nine, then that's not Michael McGrath's car on the CCTV footage. Stephen Robinson is not seeing whatever it was he saw, he's not seeing Ben and McGrath together at Benbow's property at 9am or thereabouts. So yeah, power was a big one. If, if there was even a possibility that he was at home using power, that's the crown murder theory, as we say, obliterated. Well, it had to be more than just a possibility. It had to be a reasonable possibility. So um, it had to raise that reasonable doubt in the jury's mind. And again, I mean, it was it was very important evidence, but, but there were so many little strands to this case. So, you know, even if they thought, well, you know, maybe the, maybe the defence have got a point there, when they looked at some of the other evidence, they would have said, no, that we are perfectly entitled to prefer the, the Crown expert on this one. The other big change, and this was clear from the first day when we saw the Crown witness list for the second trial, was there were a host of new witnesses around Littleton Port, mostly colleagues of Stephen Robinson. The Crown clearly wanted to bolster this part of its case. Stephen Robinson was a crucial witness. He said he saw two men that looked very much like um, Bimbo and uh, and Michael McGrath around about 9am outside Bimbo's property. In a sense, it was quite good evidence because his description of the two men was, was fairly accurate. And although the defence would argue that he was suggestible and that he had seen some of the um, public notifications about um, the case, there was still some material there that wasn't publicly released. So it was a good sighting. The problem was around the timing. So that was really key for the Crown. They had to try and reconstruct his timing. And the strongest element about Stephen Robinson's evidence is that it fit. It fitted with the CCT footage. Um, it fitted with his habit in terms of leaving work. And there was nothing really that that meant he couldn't have been there at the time to see the two guys outside Bimbo's property. So I was there for some of that Newport evidence. And like you say, I mean, we got to the end of it and it was still like... Yeah, okay. Stephen Robinson left work about 8.30, give or take, still. Like, it didn't change that. What this added was that sort of subconscious implication that this was important to the jury. Here are a host of people who are more or less supporting what Stephen Robinson said, and we're going to dwell on this because it's important. And that, and that's kind of enough in that case. Like, they yeah. weren't adding anything. They were just reinforcing what we already knew, which... Yeah, it would have not given, nothing. It would have given the jury some comfort about accepting his evidence. I mean, the Justice Eaton did give the jury a fairly firm direction about Stephen Robinson's evidence, and I don't think he did that in the first trial. But he he warned the jury. He said, "Look, I'm not substituting my view of his evidence for yours, but you need to be alert to some of the problems with his evidence." But again, you know, it, it, it was just one piece of the puzzle. And it seemed, you know, the, the defence weren't able to show that it wasn't possible for uh, Stephen Robinson to have been there to, to make the sighting. And we had all that evidence that you've just mentioned about his work habits so that, again, that didn't rule it out. Yeah, in the end, the Crown wouldn't have been as happy 
with it as they would have hoped, but um, it was obviously still pretty good evidence in the end. What do you think would have happened if there was another hung jury? Well, we know that in that case, there is an obligation on the police or the Crown to seek the Solicitor General's opinion about whether a new trial uh, was justified. And the Solicitor General would have made the final decision on that one. We can't rule out the fact that there might have been a new trial, but there has to be some very compelling reasons for a third trial. It can't just be we're going to go around again and see what happens third time. No, there have to be some very compelling reasons. Haven't been many pre-trial cases. No, the the famous one in New Zealand is... is, um, is the Barlow case, John Barlow, I think it is, who was tried three times and found guilty on the third trial and still maintains his innocence. Again, a circumstantial case, Mm. but, yeah, no, it's a fairly rare event. Mm. Also, I found out yesterday the the cricket umpire, the Peter Plumley-Walker case, was tried three times, although I think think the dominatrix was guilty, guilty, acquitted from memory. But, yeah, that was, again, you can probably count on one hand all of those cases that have been tried more than yeah. twice in New Zealand. I mean, hung juries aren't unusual. When the law was changed, there was a feeling that a number of trials had had hung juries because of one rogue juror, one person holding out. So then we got to, that they changed the law to allow a majority verdict, 11 to 1. At the time, there was some concerns about that, but it seems to, have been, it seems to work and there's no real agitation for that to change. Thank you, Martin. You're welcome. That concludes our in-depth coverage of the David Benbow case. Benbow does, of course, have the right to seek leave to appeal against his sentence, conviction or both. No word on that yet. We'll keep an ear out for any developments. So, and I never thought I'd get the chance to say this, the trial is adjourned. For now. You've been listening to The Trial from Stuff, New Zealand's home of true crime podcasts. It was scripted and produced by me, Michael Wright, from the Press Newsroom in Christchurch. Sound design, audio editing and mixing was by Connor Scott. The associate producer was Jen Black, consulting producer Adam Dudding and executive producer Chris Reed. Thanks to Kamala Heyman, Martin Van Bainen and Jake Kenny from the Press. You can listen to the full series via Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please follow the show and consider leaving a review recommending it to other people. For more great true crime listening, go to stuff.co.nz slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you've made it to the end of this episode, we're assuming the trial is hitting the mark for you. It takes resources and hardworking people to bring you each one of these episodes. So if you think it's fair to support content that keeps you informed and entertained, then support us at stuff.co.nz support. An airliner takes off from Auckland Airport on a sightseeing trip to Antarctica. A few hours later, all 257 people on board are dead. White silence. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for White Silence.